Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome to Couched. Today, we are thrilled to have award-winning choreographer, theater director, dancer, and writer, Bill T. Jones, in conversation today with psychoanalyst, professor, and Dean of Humanities at Rutgers University, Dr. Michelle Stevens. Please go to our website, www.couchedpodcast.org, to read more about their many accomplishments and their work. So, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'd like to start us off by asking each of you just to say a little bit to begin with, and we can get into more, about what topics and issues are compelling you currently in your work and what you find intriguing about what the other is doing right now. So either of you can start us off. I'll start us off. So I was originally born in Jamaica and I would describe that beginning as still very much a part of the work that I see myself doing in psychoanalysis and in academia. So I work kind of across three fields in thinking about Caribbean and Caribbean studies and Caribbean people, especially in the U.S., like myself. I also, as a Jamaican who has lived as much here as I've lived in the Caribbean, I think a lot about the relationship between Caribbean identities and people and African-American identities and people and histories. So a part of my work is about Black studies broadly, more broadly conceived. And then when I decided to train as a psychoanalyst, you know, what drew me into psychoanalysis was trying to think through how psychoanalysis thought about difference, because I felt that I had learned a particular way of thinking about difference in terms of race in both my Caribbean and African-American studies selves. And here was this whole other field that many Jamaicans are not necessarily people who think of therapy as the first place to go when they're working through things. So I was really interested in how psychoanalytic therapy thought about and encountered and confronted difference. And so the bringing together of those three things, since I began that journey of training and linking this psychoanalytic kind of life to my prior academic life, I feel like currently what I've been thinking most about is Black bodies, Black movement, Black thinking, and how psychoana- what psychoanalysis adds or doesn't to conversations already occurring within Black studies and Black radical thought. Uh, thank you. There's a, a curious thing that happens when you're trying to listen to someone at the same time you're trying to formulate what you're going to say. And that sometimes it's an homage to the quality of your thought. I'm very full of you right mm-hmm. now, having just been reading your article. And, mm-hmm. and I'm now doing racial looking. And I'm mm-hmm. saying, ah, so this That's is right. a black woman. Uh-huh. Yes. So what am I thinking about right now? I am a person who has been in, in, a, in an art form for soon to be 50 years. I started as a young performer, a young male performer, which has its own meaning in the world of contemporary movement because there's always more women than men. And I met my partner, Arnie Zane, and uh, we began a career of exploring 
the idea of art making, the idea of outsiderness, the idea of loving in public. It was the political and the personal were mixed from the beginning, much to the chagrin of my critics. And there was this desire to have to have a voice, an authentic voice. When Arnie Zane died of complications from HIV, I think it's the appropriate place to start maybe, I was fetid all over Europe because I was one of those things they loved there, at least they used to love there, the Black American who had to leave his craven society and go to the shores, the enlightened shores of Europe to be themselves. For me, that was, it was okay. It played to something, Michelle, if I said you're trying to get over. So, uh, which is something I have to resist because I'm always trying to seduce and get over. So we can dig down into that later. Anyways, when they asked me about who I am, I said that I am the surviving member of a celebrated interracial same-sex couple. And they love that. They wrote it down. And everywhere I went, the surviving member of an interracial same-sex couple that were artistic partners. So to this day, I'm still trying to understand what that is. I'm always making works now about the body. The body is the site of all knowledge, true or false. Maybe you can help me with that. If the body is the site of all knowledge and knowing how contested bodies are, knowing how contested my body has been, because I'm oftentimes, at least much of my career, I've been the only black body in the room and I'm on stage. I have tried, uh, Arnie and I, but Arnie died and the company continued on. I have tried to stay true to something that Arnie and I formulated. And you'll find me oftentimes speaking Arnie and I, Arnie and I. This is something like a legacy, an intellectual legacy. And it's like a shield of defense or something. But we said that our company was not the world as it is, but a microcosm of the world as we would like it to be. And there was, it's no big news now, the performance that Billy Pivnik and uh, Romy Reading saw last night, we take it for granted that there are interracial groups all the time, but that was not the case, and it is hard as hell to do. So the company is a picture of the world we want to live in, not the world as it is. So is there a lie in that? And is art only about lying? And I'm sitting talking to a psychoanalyst, and I'm assuming you are a parser of truth. And that's what makes this conversation very exciting to me. And I'll get off the soapbox for a moment. Uh, one, well, you made me think of those. So one of the things I could have shared with you to read is a book I wrote a few years back that's titled Skin Acts. Yes, I want to get that. I want to yes. see that. Yes. Well, one of the chapters in that is about Paul Robeson. And oh, on the cover oh of the book is an <laughs> image of Paul Robeson that was taken by a modernist photographer, Nicholas Murray, a nude, mm. with Robeson posed in a very neoclassical style. <laughs> and part of my discussion about him in that book is about something that a character Caribbean theorist named C.L.R. James, who was a contemporary of Paul Robeson's, mm -hmm. called the body line. Mm -hmm. And for C.L.R. James, the body line was not simply our aesthetic appreciation of a body in motion, right, but the way in which that 
pulls us in as participants in the scene with that body in motion, right? And for CLR James, that's what happened to him when he watched Paul Robeson in motion, right? And that is the experience I had at Afterwardness, which I know we will talk about. I was able to come also. I was very Bravo. pleased to be invited. I'm so mm -hmm. happy that I was invited. Mm -hmm. And so I was there yesterday afternoon or Saturday afternoon. And that is one of the first striking impressions to me about the performance was the way the movements of bodies in dance and the members of your troupe pulled at least myself as an audience member into an experience of my own memories and processing mm. of this five month phase of things that we've been in, right? And these bodies, by the way, that were multiply raced, gendered, shaped. There were movements that were happening that reminded me of movements I've seen on screen of black performers, right? First of all, you know, this isn't what you saw almost every phrase you saw mm -hmm. there what came out of my body. So that's the news there, that when we went into quarantine, my associate artistic director, the great Janet Wong, she gave them assignments. They had to each go into the little rooms, and once a week they had to like turn a tape into her of them learning a phrase from Bill, let's say, in 1991. Or there's a little Arnie Zane in there as well. This is how we were teaching them about this, because dance truly is, for better or for worse, it is about when one person teaches another one in real time. That's what's so scary right now. We're losing that. So they have not, many of these dancers have not had a dancing Bilty Jones. They've had the man with the white hair who sits in a chair yelling at them and telling them what to do, but they don't know what it's like to sweat with him and to do what you saw yesterday. But so just what you said, black movement. You know who Trisha Brown is? Yes, well, Trisha Brown made this way of working, that kind of the isolations and all of that stuff. A lot of that came from Trisha Brown, a white woman from Washington, right? Who is a great maker of systems. Now I've got the, I got the funk in my bones, right? I, I grew up in a house where we had jukeboxes in the living room and we would perform for each other. But Trisha Brown, also, she was a kind of a hippie girl. And so a lot of that, the hip swinging and those things came from that counterculture. I went to her as a younger artist, going to a senior artist. I was in crisis and asked her to allow me to do a work with her. She was making a solo. So a lot of what you see is Bilty Jones filtering or understanding Trisha Brown. One of the greatest compliments I ever got in a review was, Bilty Jones is a cross between Trisha Brown and Ben Vereen. Now, anybody here, Broadway people, do you know who Ben Vereen was? He was the song and dance man par excellence. He was sexy. He was everything you think a black, black male body in an entertainment medium would be. And here I am in the avant-garde being compared to him and the mistress of the intellectual silky movement, Trisha mm -hmm. Brown. So that's what you mm -hmm. were saying yesterday. Mm -hmm. But thank you for your for your eyes and heart. Mm -hmm. I'm also very yeah. struck, Romy and Billy, I'm just going to go ahead with one other thing that was striking me, which is your use of the word phrase. So I, too, was looking at some of prior YouTube videos of various of your work mm -hmm. in the past. And mm -hmm. I was so fascinated by it seemed like a thing that you did I don't know if it's your thing or if it's common in the field where you would do a phrase, just your body, 
then you would talk out the phrase, right? And then, <laughs> and then you would free associate the third phrase, and then you would do a breakup of your body. I, so I watched a few, I watched you do one, and I watched a few of your students or troop members do a few others. And I found really? that they- interesting. That was so, especially for some of what wow. you look like you were thinking about with the show in terms of repetition. Well, I, I feel, uh, as usual in this age, this digital era, that's online. You know, that is called floating the tongue because of work I did in Eastern meditation years ago. And this is Zen Buddhist exercise for centering the mind where you sit and you breathe and you try to keep the tongue, this very simple muscular activity, free of the upper palate, lower palate, or in the side. It's very difficult to do. As you know, you probably know better than I do, when we're thinking, the tongue goes somewhere, it gets lodged somewhere. So floating the tongue, so by focusing on a simple physical activity, I extrapolated that instruction to be, can I make a short movement sequence, now go back into it and describe it on the level kinesiologically, describe it in terms of skeleton and so on, can I go a little bit deeper and talk about it in terms of the associations? The associations are always right there. And do I dare go to a place where the associations, which come with emotions, change the movement? So that's what you're talking about. Can I about jump in one, one sec? I just can't resist. I, 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 I will confess. I literally have goosebumps. Billy and I have spent so many years talking about the ways we've envisioned intersections between the arts and psychoanalysis. And it's it's happening so beautifully here. I mean, it's really wonderful. Just hearing you talk about the piece floating the tongue, which I've seen actually. Catherine Cabine do that back. I don't remember where. It was you could have been describing psychoanalysis that moment in the way you said. How so? The, the How associations so? are right there. They're always right there. And then as they come, there's emotions with them. And as they come, there's movement in the body. Right. And we now, I would say in the past 20 years in psychoanalysis, have really become interested in that very process in the clinical setting and how you can hear a patient by watching them, not just by listening to their mm. words. But I had to point that out because it was very exciting. You realize, of course, Romy, if, if uh, someone said that in the review, I would be Ooh, dashed. Yeah. He subjected us to his psychology. You know, he's subject. Now, that means that you have left the, the lofty realm of art making and you've moved mm-hmm. into, and I'm being provocative here, into the lowly, banal realm of the battlefield we call human psychology. We all have them. Why am I listening to his? So this is the line I have been walking, trying to understand how it can be as volcanic, as real, as true, but it's got to be, what is that thing that makes it what makes it art? It's a really important question. So wearing my my professor hat as a humanist, very recently at Rutgers, we were awarded this ability to create an institute. And the institute is supposed to be for the study of global racial justice, but it's supposed to be from a humanities perspective. And one of the, one of the interests that I have in being a part of this is I feel like as humanists, The question you just raised, which I think artists, certain artists like yourself are often thinking about is, and I think psychoanalysts are starting to think about it, which is where does the social and the cultural fit 
in the form of the thing that we do? Where does the social and the cultural fit in the form of the analytic encounter as a psychoanalyst? And where does the social and the cultural fit in the form of a dance phrase, in the, in the aesthetic form that you work within? And I feel like that is, that is what I think humanists today need to be actually trying to think through if we want to articulate our relevance, right? Is to try to bring could those. You, yeah. Could you school, school me a bit? You mean there was a time when people thought, or I thought there was never a time before Mr. Freud laid these troubled people, often women, on his couch and got them to start talking about their dreams and their fathers and mothers. And it was all, I thought that this field was always in coming in the world, doing battle with the world. See, ours, it, ours, listen to me, the world that, that I, was, I was taught or promised I could be in, was between two poles. There was the Apollonian, which is this lofty, detached from human encounters, existing with eternal questions. And then the Dionysian, that which is the messiness, the body and so on like that. But now, has there ever been a time when the pursuit of what the psychoanalysis was divorced from the world? I wouldn't say divorced from the world. No, I think that I, I, like you, would agree that I think one of, you know, civilization and its discontent, one aspect of the Freudian intervention is to think differently about how we as human beings interact with the world and what gets imprinted unconsciously that we're not realizing is about our interaction with the world. So I think that's there. But the bodies mm -hmm. of the analysts in the room, I think what has developed ah. in psychoanalysis over time has been more awareness that it's not just the body of the patient in the world that matters in the clinical psychoanalytic space, but the body of the mm -hmm. analyst also matters, right? I had a, a, a traumatic breakup with my last therapist. No, it was not. It was, I wish it had been more dramatic. It just sort of fizzled in a way. And I think I take some responsibility at you, but I'm I'm still trying to, as Hannah Arendt said, understanding is not overcoming, it is reconciling the conditional nature of our life with the world. So I'm trying to reconcile with the psychotherapeutic experience I had. Some things would come in the news, like I'd be upset about uh, civil rights legislation around voting has been was rescinded or something. And those things, we never found a way to bring those into the discussion. I don't know. I take responsibility because I think that he was assuming that I wanted an island that was separate from the world. And he was providing me with a solid frame. And yet in that, I'm supposed to be, you know, we can talk about anything here, he would say, you know, okay, which we did. But, in, but I don't think I could ever bring my blackness into the room. And that's one thing, I, one reason I was excited about meeting you, because I've never met a black therapist. Whenever I did that with him, it was a, aggressive, you know, and he was, we never got a chance to talk about, we never made it to Black Lives Matter. We never made it to this era we're in right now. And he was holding some sort of frame. And at once I wanted it, and another one I wanted to challenge it. How does that work now? How is it changing in, in your field? I think we all might want to say something about that, right? I'll let you start yeah. with that because, I mean, that's actually part of why we do this podcast because we're trying to address that problem. I consider that to be a mm. huge problem. But Michelle, you look like you wanted to say something in response. I mean, this is one of the questions 
one of the questions on the table for, I think, psychoanalytic theorists and practitioners right now that fascinates and troubles and challenges me, I do think that we are more aware of our own bodies as the analyst in the room. Something about the frame of psychoanalysis as it was understood in that moment that you were working with him didn't raise the question of who, who are the bodies here in the room and how does that impact the scene of our conversation? I don't think it raised the question in the same way. There was a feeling that there are certain questions that somehow don't apply. And I think that is one of the things that is shifting, that part of that, you know, you can talk about anything you want to talk about here. I think as analysts, we're getting pushed that almost anything about you is also in the room. But if I'm a woman and I'm pregnant and I walk in and I'm seven months pregnant as a female analyst, something about me has been disclosed and is now in the room. If I'm an analyst of color dealing with a patient of another race or another ethnicity, something about me that is striking has walked into the room. I have to be as prepared to think about what that means. And if I'm a white analyst dealing with either other white clients or clients of color, something about me is walking into the room. So I feel like that sensibility has opened up a bit more, the self-awareness of the analyst that I am walking in with something that could as much be fodder for discussion as what the patient is walking in with. And we're going to have to kind of figure that out together, what that means. I just wanted to inject here. This discussion is reminding me of a, a quote that's often cited by Zora Neale Hurston. If you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. Mm. You know, the price that we pay in our field of having been silencing of people's pain that, that comes from social and cultural realities is huge. And it leads to events like you described, Bill, where it, it felt like your analyst suddenly fired you out of nowhere. And that's unfortunate. It really is unfortunate. And we are trying to understand better how we embody all kinds of feelings, including ones that seem socially unacceptable. Well, but, but Billy, how does, how does this notion of objectivity, and see, once again, I'm, I feel like I've been my own worst enemy because I have this respect for the canon. Therefore, you know, they know they know. And the reason this is being done this way is because years have been put into it and the therapist does not want to inject themselves into the discussion because after all, you're paying whatever you're paying for this to be about you. Well, what, where's the truth then? If I was allowed to want it, was it being undisciplined? We used to talk a lot about it. I said, oh, my, my problem is that I'm not Mr. Obama. You know, no drama, Obama. I'm always dramatic. I feel like a black man in a white world and I'm always falling short and so on and so forth. And he didn't take that up. Now, what could he do with it? Was I unfair? I would say strongly no. It's two people in the room and yes, it's asymmetrical. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. So to answer your question, was I okay to want it? Yeah. Because that's how it is. It's an asymmetrical mm. setup. But it's also okay to want to have the subjectivity of the analysts in the room about what's going on in the room, which are two bodies well, of two different races. And that is meaningful. And also what's so going on say, in the world. I would say that. Because yeah. we're also living in an age where psychoanalysis mm -hmm. has started to make a political turn. Mm. And well, yes. that 
means starting to think about the ways we are citizens and political people, as well as just, you know, containers of drives or someone who um, relates to someone one-on-one, you know, that we're all part of groups and uh, how we negotiate memberships in various groups and what parts of ourself get pulled on in one group versus another and how we manage the conflict between those things are all things we're beginning to think about. And so in that sense, it's very important to hear about people's commitments politically and socially, because they're very important parts of their identity. Their identity is not just how they defend against aggressive and libidinal drive. So we are trying, and of course, it's still very nascent. So it's how each analyst handles that Mm -hmm. is still going to be subject to a lot of variation, I think. We haven't canonized that yet. But our conversation here today will contribute to that process, I think. Michelle, your work on islands and the ways that psychoanalysis has a place. What is the place of psychoanalysis? I think that's part of what Bill is really trying to frame for us. And I would love to hear more about your thinking because I found it so original. And I'm sure it comes out of your embodied Mm. experience of having grown up on an island. I'm just wondering what your thinking is about that. Well, that will allow me to start with something I was thinking about in your previous discussion, which is, you know, I think one of the things that Black studies as a field, broadly conceived, could bring in a dialogue with psychoanalysis is that Black subjects have had to think about themselves, both in terms of how we see ourselves and how others see us, right? Very prominent early 20th century Black thinker, W.E.B. Du Bois called it double consciousness, right? We are always in a kind of double related relationship to the world. I'm raising that in answer to your question initially, because when you're an Islander, no matter what you experience as your life on the island, there are so many discourses about what islands are that are imposed on you from the outside that you have to wrestle with at the same time. So if I thought about my experience from the outside, islands seem to be small, they seem to be narrow, whereas the word insular, right? Kind of provincial, right? They're not like the big metropolis, the big continental land masses. We in Jamaica are not like the big United States neighbor, right? But actually on an island, I remember one of the things I found when I first moved to this country is I as a Jamaican knew much more about global events than many of the Americans I had inter- I was interacting with because I had to know. As Jamaicans, we had to know about the International Monetary Fund and there was all of this global geopolitics. You just knew it was in your blood. It was just part of the everyday on the island, right? Because you were potentially subject to it. Whereas Americans in this huge continental space that I was interacting with never even never thought about that right so it kind of gave me a perspective about the the connectivity for islanders like islanders far from living insular lives we actually live highly connected right a notion of the insular and a, a condition of insularity is necessarily one of connectivity and for me that metaphor that reality became then a metaphor for me as I thought about what is happening in the room with a client in an analytic session, that there's a way the analysis does island you. It kind of cuts you off in the way, Bill, you talked about your therapist saying, I'm here to provide a frame that cuts you off from the world. But if it stopped there, to my mind, that's not actually where the insular stops. Insularity, it's actually a flow. It's like there's a framing and a kind of isolating and then there's a looking back out and connecting because 
the sea is right there and the sea right across the sea is another shore, another island shore. Islands are part of archipelagos, island chains. They're not single entities on their own, right? In your show, Bill, afterwardness, that the last scene where the individual dancers are in those boxes of light that are then also in boxes and they're each doing a set of phrases and then they run and they join like that for me was that's an archipelagic movement right there those different islands of experience and each of us even sitting in our socially distant seats as cast audience members we're also islands of experience and we're separate from each other but we're also intensely connected across the dancers and then across the audience that to me captures this island archipelago insularity connectivity that I find is also an element of the psychoanalytic encounter. You are as much connecting to what is going on outside as you are framed and contained within what is going on in the room. This is very exciting and uh, it makes me think, do you think that this era of social distance, this digital communication, well, what kind of effect will it have on us? I personally, I don't know yet if I can speak to what's going to happen. I know I can Mm -hmm. share, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this too, what it has felt like to me. So it's been this strange experience where on the one hand, we're isolated, right? In this, our homes, on these screens. And on the other hand, you're aware that you were part of something global. I'm living through, we are all living through the only thing I can think of that is completely global. I mean, there's probably other things, but there's just something about an experience being global. Like, I can't play out the meaningfulness of that for you yet, because there's a way for me, it's so in the present to me, it's hard to, to say more about it yet or interpret it yet beyond just how breathtaking it is to me, to be at the one hand so quote unquote isolated, yet on the other hand, to be part of something that is so collective. What does this mean? I'm not sure what that's going to translate to. As you can imagine, this cuts right to the heart of my whole worldview as a performing body. We said that there was something noble about the type of work that we did, and it's most elemental in that, that we our body becomes a sort of a cipher. I think you may have said something like this about Michelle, that through the bodies on stage, you felt a connectivity or uh, sometimes we say there's an empathetic response because we all have two arms. Well, most of us have two arms, legs, that they work a certain way. And the the metaphor, when a person pushes off the ground and they really have a, have a beautiful leap, everyone in the room could feel flying. Oh, we're doing a real service to human imagination. We're embodying imagination and we're doing it for the world that now you take that away you take that real time real space i mean literally one of the the unspoken dimensions is someone could really die here in front of me because this is real time someone could really have a horrible accident something could happen that's why we're here because it's real now now it, there's that distancing thing that And we really undercut what has been holding our theatrical traditions together since the time of the ancient Greeks and their idea of ecstasis, the idea of having to show up at these ceremonies so everybody, of course, are all male, all the citizens could, had to be to see the work and had to be seen seeing the work. Now, that is uh, scary to me, and therefore I'm looking for any opportunity that we can really sweat 
publicly. You know, we can really feel human breath next to us. It felt wonderful to be in the space for that very reason. I almost, in the way that Michelle said, I can't quite capture it yet because it's in the present. I will know only in the future and in my afterwardness looking back. There was something remarkably moving and I would say almost gave me a little panic too to be back in the theater space but in this reconfigured way, and I say panic in a good way, the good kind of panic, you know, a spikiness <laughs> that once I settled into the seat, right, I could start to find a little bit of balance with, but to then have the thought of I'm actually, wait, now that all the order and frame of how to get in safely has settled, I'm in a room with how many people? And I'm going to watch people move around. <laughs> this was... Yeah mind-blowing to be able to have that right now i can't even tell you mm. and i'm guessing billy and michelle probably felt quite similarly even for me to drive into the city you know from where i live just getting in the car and doing a drive to go to a thing that a lot of people are going to be a part of i also was having a kind of way too much energy around it when i was like michelle you go into the city all the time like you only you did that just because you haven't done it for five months doesn't mean it's this huge thing but it was a little you know scary i think i want to go even beyond that which is that the experience of being there and being part of your representing embodying the processions of black lives matter mm. the funereal processions I, I saw them from the beginning as funereal. They took the place of the funerals that we couldn't have. And there we were participating in the funeral for the lives of so many who had been brutally murdered. Mm -hmm. And to be able to, to feel the processions that you had of the dancers going around the edge of the room, you know, making the circle containing the space with the dead bodies, mm -hmm. what I imagine to be dead bodies, in the dance. Although they are sleeping alone in our isolated little rooms as well. They could have been, that's true. Yeah, yeah. To me, uh, to me <laughs> I brought a memorialization perspective. Uh, and it's valid, it's valid. There was a mournfulness, especially with the, some of the singing was amazing. Yes, I know. Oh. Another man done gone. You've heard, you've heard, oh. you've heard Odetta do that one, right? Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, there is a gap now in African-American youth. They, they don't have same relationship to the black church as yes. I did through my yeah. mother and through the black church to feel slavery literally in their voice and to feel those things. So he was looking around. He said, oh, I found this. Maybe it would work. And he found the recording of Odetta. I could have cried. You know, Odetta was a friend of mine, but I, I mean, I never told them about Odetta. They didn't know this. Well, no, they don't know. And so he made a discovery. Another man done gone, and another man done gone from the county farm. And he was singing another man done gone from the countryside. The county farm, like Parchment Farm, Angola, those were penitentiaries, prisons. And he had a long chain on. He literally had escaped from the chain game. Now, Toni Morrison territory, but that was very profound for me just to go and excavate the layers of Black experience and I'm not even sure if I'm sentimental right now because their experience, young black folks now have another way of thinking. One of the founders of Black Lives Matter, Garza, I'm just getting to know her now. And Garza has written a book now 
and she, in an article in the, in the Guardian, she says, look, if everyone's looking for Martin Luther King, that's not the way leadership looks anymore. I said, oh, it doesn't? Oh, I'm so attached to that wise, deep, spiritual person. And, but she talks about TV producers like Lena Waite. She talks about, she doesn't say it, but people are they're making pop music, but with a message. I said, well, that's what our leadership, that's what our We Shall Overcome looks like. It's interesting that one of the themes is how we're in our field in psychoanalysis, and you've been discussing it in the realm of contemporary dance, the ways in which we relate to the classical canon, inside, outside, wanting to shift it. I think you've done a lot more than, you're further along in that process, perhaps, than I think psychoanalysis is, but hopefully we are making our way, I hope. Now, I'm aware we, we're, think, we're almost at time. Romy, we just want, I just want to say one other okay. thing. Michelle, I think you're a, a very important part of this shift, yes. too, because I think we tend to talk about creating a third as a way of getting past the binaries, and it's an area of negotiation. But I think that your notion of islands and the ways they're interlapping as well as overlapping and the flows. Yeah, I just think that's a place we need to go and to understand. I want, could you take a moment and explain that to me, the interlapping as well as overlapping? Really quickly on interlapping, I'm trying to think of how I see that. It's a word that was brought to my attention by a friend and colleague who I've worked with. So it feels like overlapping implies something overshadows like the other, right? Yes, there's an area of overlap, but there's interlapping, I think of as more active, that, the, that it's a back and forth reciprocal moving mobile kind of. So I, that's cycling. how I think of the, the difference between the mm -hmm. inter versus the over, right? The lapping is happening. It's like waves, exactly, right? But waves, not just the wave hitting the shore, but somehow that there's an interlapping relationship between the shore and the wave, right? So even though one is, yes, but it might shift back and forth. Each is eclipsing the other. It's cycling. Exactly. It's not just one motion constantly, right? Which is where I think the wave alone may overlap the shore, but the wave and the shore together are interlapping each other. Exactly. But something is still being eclipsed yeah. though, right? It, something is, yes, no, but oh. there is a way the meaning that is, that is gathered about that event in the past, the meaning is only possible partly through the repetition of it in the present and in the future. I think, Billy, you sent me a, one of our first communications, you sent me a, a series of shows that you'd done before. It was on one of the shows, uh, this very touching thing uh -huh. about a, a hate crime uh, around a young trans person, I believe. And, the, and I, one of those, there was a man who I believe yeah. was a playwright or a journalist, right? And then there was a... Oh, I see. Dr. Ken Corbett, he's actually a psychoanalyst, but he went and observed the trial out in California almost as if he were a journalist, except that he was interviewing all of the various didn't he introduce in that conversation he said it was like a very end moment I, I thought i was listening to some high people talk about something i didn't know he said well you know how this term we have of afterwardness and i thought what first of all and i've written recently trying to for the various media they want to know where the title comes from and i say it is an awkward though evocative title and it is awkward afterwardness and i said i it was a Freudian concept, this is my Wikipedia take on it, that speaks about 
trauma, particularly sexual trauma, as seen only with distance. And I said, for my purposes, I was offered this commission in the wake of George Floyd in the middle of the pandemic. And I was trying to project a time when I would have the experience of after witness. I thought by now it would all be, how innocent, right? By now it would all be in the past. So I chose that, like I said, a tongue in cheek way of talking about what I and many, many people are secretly, maybe not so secretly desiring, when do we get back to normal? Right. And unfortunately, afterwardness is cyclical, like Michelle is describing with the waves of experience. And there is no one point in time that you reflect back from. Things from the past keep coming forward, as well as us looking backwards. So like your reference to Odette, suddenly here's Odette in the field between you and your singer coming coming into consciousness in a way that one wouldn't have imagined, but because it's in your consciousness, it's in your singer's consciousness. And so it comes from the past as well as going from the present back. It's, it's both ways. But it is after, though. That is retrospective, isn't it? It is. That's a primary characteristic of this experience, that it's retrospective. Yes. Or is it? Yes. But there is a way the meaning that is gathered about that event in the past, the meaning is only possible partly through the repetition of it in the present and in the future. So that's where the, in, like, that no event after is the event itself. They're all repetitions, but, but they're not just flat repetitions. They themselves produce meaning in reflecting back on that period. So afterwardness is a kind of cyclical state in which you are constantly learning and adding to what you thought you knew about the thing that you're that's back there in the past right so tr triggering for instance is a new word relatively new trauma is that yeah. an aspect of afterwardness when something i'm triggered my rape is triggered my abuse is triggered that's after it's one element of it, it, it I, it's I, an it, aspect of it yep for sure but, uh -huh, but so sure. is uh -huh. the way that the expression we use cliche is the other shoe dropping where you think an event is complete in, in your experience and memory, and then suddenly something happens and you realize you have dissociated a whole lot about the experience that was too scary to experience at the time. And it comes back later when you don't expect it. And yet, if, if we are true to ourselves, to come back to your original question, then we can explore that and what it means and reintegrate it, put it back together with what we thought we knew to create a new meaning that may be more adaptive in the present. And that way we're not stuck with all the flashbacks because we're able to move forward with that new knowledge. Mm -hmm. So there's healing then. We didn't talk about mm -hmm. healing. Psychoanalysis doesn't really talk so much about healing. I know, I know. But I think it's a nice place to take ourselves here as we are winding down. What were you going to say about healing? No, I was though? asking you. Am I? Because I, I came uh -huh. to therapy as I with the idea that I was that something was wrong and I was going to get. I I told him I felt every week I'm at, at a one arm bandit. I'm putting in my quarters, and then some one session I'm going to have all cherries, and suddenly. I will have won and I'll walk home with the bounty of a healthy psyche. And, and he's, and he's, where'd you ever get that idea from? <laughs> 
And unfortunately, though, <laughs> we have to stop for today. I'm so happy that I could be here. This has been a wonderful, both the entire experience, Bill. It's such an honor and pleasure to be able to engage with you and just chat with you as if we're, see, this is one of the things that this moment does give us. You know, I feel like I'm, I am literally sitting chatting with you in my living room, right? Thank you all so much for bringing me into this discussion. And I'm really, I, I feel elevated at the moment. Oh. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Romy and Billy, thank you both so much. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so Bye-bye much Bye-bye. for joining us. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.